So Luke chapter 3, verse 1, if we could. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia in Tranconitis, and uh, Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and, and Caiaphas, Kiapha, the word of God came to John, son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. What in the world's going on there? One of the claims by those who are ignorant regarding the scriptures, um, I was one of them and still am to, many, to a degree, but is that the scriptures are not God's word but rather are a compilation of people over the years who have written history to suit their needs. Revisionist history. That's one of the the things I bump into. As I run into people, I'm discussing things, and I am beginning to make arguments and and discussions from the Scriptures as to things. And what their attack is, is the Scriptures are unreliable. They come from just a bunch of people who decided to write whatever they want after the fact to verify what they believe. Well, that's a pretty wide and broad accusation. And we find that began, guess where? In the Garden of Eden with the Satan himself, when he came to Eve and said, Eve, you know, go ahead and eat of this fruit. And Eve said, hey, you know, God said not to do that. And then he responds, said, did God really say? And so those are lies from the pit of hell that the Bible is unreliable. And one of the proofs, this is, I'm not going to go into a big giant apologetic thing this morning. However, if you take the foundations class, (laughs) ah, hook, you know, shameless plug. But one of the ways in which God defends himself is that his actual writing is in actual time and history. I look at the Book of Mormon, and it's, it's crazy. There's fairy tales, and true fairy tales are in it. Um, it can't be backed up archaeologically. It can't be backed up factually. It's just, it's just insane, uh, many of the things that they claim in there. And believe me, if, if there was a parallel, I would give it credibility. But it's, there isn't. They're talking about the Jews being from, uh, the, the American Indians are Jews. And they're claim, there's a map, and it's, it's, it's a pretend map, and all these types of things that are going on. And, and when it comes up to scrutiny, it can't hold up. But see, the Bible has gone up against scrutiny after scrutiny, and people who try to hammer it day and night, every day, and yet, as someone said, it is an anvil that's worn out many hammers. And eventually... Uh, I was in a discussion this past, uh, this past month as I was teaching chapel at the Christian Aid Center on a Sunday night. I've shared it with some of you. And the subject was darkness of man and the light of Christ. Psalm 107, John chapter 1. That the light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. And when you start teaching about that, guess what the darkness doesn't like? It doesn't like light. Well, the discussion was intense. There began to be a couple of guys who were um, adamantly telling me that I was out of my mind and from a different planet. Literally use those words. And eventually, one of the guys said that the Bible was a hoax. It was a bunch of lies written by men. And then he said that he had a friend who had a degree and studied it, and that he said that it was all a hoax. Well, since he publicly attacked the Lord, I publicly defended him. You know? 
And I asked him what the book of Genesis was about. And he could not answer. I asked, what is Exodus about? Tell me any book of the Bible and tell me what's the theme. What's it about? Who are the characters? And you can see this guy shrinking back in the room. And the reason why I did that was not to humiliate him. Because that is the lie that was permeating the room. There was darkness and light clashing. And unless light stands up, darkness will prevail. And it was interesting and we proceeded to talk about things, and there's a lot more in the context, but he said, he, I just basically said, you don't have a clue about what you're talking about. And then he proceeded to tell everyone, most who sided with him, that the only book that was reliable was the book of Satan. It's very interesting, as we were talking about darkness and light. Some of you were in the room, I, can't, I don't know, but... Um, and then everybody who was siding with him realized, oh my gosh... I just sided with that. And the whole theme of the discussion was darkness and light. The Holy Spirit was using a real-time illustration regarding the darkness of men in the light of Christ. But I, too, have made dumb statements about the Bible in my youth. I've, I've made dumb statements about God, ignorant statements. And I think we've all been there. Anybody? Everybody's kind of guilty of that? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I wish someone had straightened me out. But it was great. I went back and talked to him and, and developed a relationship. And so there's, it's not, you know, it's not just to win an argument. That's not what we're about. We want to win the heart, right? But one of the ways that the Bible defends itself is that it's a real historical book. It's a real historical book. It was written by men inspired by the Holy Spirit in a real cultural context at a real point in history. And also... Uh, you know, we might gloss over all of these historical names and move on, you know, really quickly to get to what it's about. But there's a reason why it says those things at the beginning of chapter 3. And, and the Bible does this over and over. If you're a student of the Word and you go back and you read the prophets, you will see that when the Word of the Lord came to so-and-so at this time, and this guy was king, and this was what was going on, because that's how they said it. It wasn't 1923 you know, when he spoke to me. It was, this was the king, these were the people who were in power, and all these types of things were going on. For example, in Isaiah 1.1, it says the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw during the reign of Uzziah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so he's giving a time frame, a time marker, when, when God was actually speaking, a real man in a real culture, in a real time, in a real God who's speaking to him. It's not make-believe. It's not once upon a time. And this happens over and over. And if you are a student of Scripture, you see that God wants you to know when and where He spoke in time. God intervenes in the affairs of humanity. He speaks to us. He has spoken in the old time by His prophets. In these last days, He has spoken by His Son, Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons this is so is so that we will know that the Word of God cannot come just from the minds of men, but it actually is from God because He tells the end from the beginning. He says things that happen. He spoke in time. There's a 2,000-year-old prophecy, and all of a sudden you see it come true. He calls out Cyrus by name, and Cyrus reads about himself and goes, what in the world is this? Now, if you are anti-Christ, you are going to go and try to explain those things against God, is what I'm saying. If, if you are 
against the Lord, what you're going to do is you're going to go read those things and go, that can't possibly be so. And therefore, someone must have done this. And then that's what you start to attack. We do it with science. It's as plain as day that an orange tree came from an orange tree. A cat came from a cat. A human came from a a human. And that there is a creative purpose behind it. Everything has design and purpose. If I were to take that new Ford truck or whatever, Chevy truck, I don't want to offend anybody, you know, equal, equal opportunity to offend everybody. If I were to look at that and I were just to say, you know what, that came from a process of billions and billions of years of just things coming together and then it just eventually formed in that machine, you would just go, you are out of your mind. But if I were to explain to you that that was a thought in someone's mind, and then it came about in the material world, that would make much more sense to you, would it not? And we are in the image of our creator. Why do you think we do what we do? See, but to try to explain the universe apart from God is what man tries to do. Because then you'd have to be accountable to that creator. We try to do that with moral law. We try to say truth is what we want to make it, make it to be. And truth can be the same thing for different people. No, truth is not relative. It is absolute. And the thing is, is if you have a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. And you must be accountable to that moral law giver. And so when I speak to people who say there isn't a God, I'm saying, are you sure about that? You know? And where do you come from? Where do you come to that from? And why do you think that? And is it right or wrong? And I ask right or wrong questions. And when they say, you know, hey, well, I don't know if it's right or wrong. So if I kill you right now, you're cool with that. No, there's something wrong about that. Well, where does that come from? There's a sense of right or wrong. So I know I'm kind of going off on stuff, but the point is people come along and they try to discredit the scriptures because there's no way in their minds that they could have known that those events that transpired before they happened. It's impossible for men. And that's the very thing that God is showing us, that he is actually the author of the scripture. And he doesn't do it just one time. I think Larry was sharing uh, last week, uh, last time at the Christian Aid Center, that the probability of just 300 prophecies concerning, of just one prophecy, it was eight prophecies, eight prophecies concerning Christ to come true would be like, uh, I think, Larry, what was it? It's in the realm of impossibility, 10 to the negative 50-something or something like that. And I'm a total mathematician, so I can visualize that at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but it's like they took the idea of you take a silver dollar. Was it a quarter or a silver dollar or something like that? Like silver dollar. And, you, put, and you, you paint it, and you put it you know, in a pile of, like I think, two or three feet high in the whole state of Texas. And the odds of grabbing that one out in one try would be the odds of, one, of eight of those prophecies coming true. And yet there's 300. And so God is speaking in ways to us that are absolutely fascinating and amazing to let us know that he's real. And that he tells the end from the beginning when Jesus is sitting there at the cro- uh, before the cross and he knows the kind of death that he will have. He knows that he will die. He will know uh, that he will rise again. He says that he dies on the cross. He says all these types of things. And the critics look at it and they say, no way, there's no way he could have known any of that because I don't know that and I'm God, basically. But there's unbelief 
at the root of it. And that goes all the way back to Satan. But one of the ways, again, is that God points out who he is, is to say there, that there's actually, it's actually, he's speaking into time. And they're real historical people. It's very interesting. I didn't get into a lot of it because I don't have time to do it. But up until 1961, a lot of people believed that Pontius Pilate was a myth. They said, no, the Bible's not true. And then all of a sudden, archaeologists start digging around around Caesarea. And they pull up this marker. And in big old letters on it, it says Pontius Pilate, governor of so-and-so. They go, okay, well, maybe he's real. Same thing with the Hittites. Hittites, those aren't real people. And all of a sudden, they start digging up stuff, and they find out, oh, Hittites, they're real. And then they started getting smart and using the Bible to go find archaeological places. <laughs> you see how that works? Pretty interesting. There's a lot more there. And not only are these people verified in Scripture and spoken about in Scripture, externally, Tacticus, Josephus, other writers and historians, they reference Pontius Pilate. They reference Tiberius. They reference all these things. And yet they aren't attacking them for some reason. Why is that? And so one of the evidences that we have, just one of the way God believes it, is that he is actually writing in time and, and the authors are writing in time and they say what's going on. And so this is a time marker. You need to know these are real people, real time. It's like saying, hey, Trump just became president and you know, so-and-so is mayor of this. We got governor here and this is what's going on and this is when God started to speak. Tiberius was emperor of Rome. Descendants of Herod the Great were ruling parts of Palestine and Pilate was the governor of Judea, which is the area that Jerusalem was in. And so it was in the time of Tiberius and these governors and priests, at that moment in time, that is how, uh, that's when God began to speak. And then it says in verse 2 that the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. The phrase, the word of the Lord, is a distinct phrase that we see in the Old Testament when it's speaking to prophets. When God's speaking to the prophets, it says, the word of the Lord came to a prophet. As we read in chapter 1, 16 through 17, uh, this is really what the role of John was. He was a prophet. It says, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist was the prophet sent to prepare the people of Israel for the Messiah. Jesus said he was the mightiest of prophets, but least in the kingdom. Verse 3, he went on into all the country around the Jordan for preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. Isaiah the prophet speaking a thousand years before this time, or roughly. And so John's main message that God gave him was that to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so it seems that to be the case most often that when God gives us uh, something spiritual, spiritual reality, he gives us a physical reminder or a physical illustration of what that's like. 
How many of you, when you hear an example or you hear something, someone tried to teach something, it's really helpful when someone uses a picture. I'm not very good at that. So I, you know, nor word pictures and all that type of stuff, but it's helpful for me in some ways. You know, how does that work? How many of you use YouTube now instead of people? <clears throat> yeah, it's, repent. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's helpful to see the part and to, to see it in time. And so God gives us a picture there out of Isaiah of what the ministry of the baptism of repentance and forgiveness is. And one of the pictures that God gives us, a, a spiritual illustration, is that of communion. You know, we have a, a wafer and we have some, some juice. And what, God, what Jesus instituted is that we would have a physical reminder of the spiritual reality. That Jesus died for us. His blood takes away all our sins. That his body was bruised for us, was broken for us. By his transgression, by his, uh, by his uh, what happened to him, uh, his punishment, we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. And that we no longer are sustained on this world by our own means. He is our sustenance. He's our spiritual food. He's the manna from heaven. And so there's all these pictures and types that are coming down for us. And so John was to preach that baptism of repentance and forgiveness. Baptism means to submerge. And the spiritual reality is that God desired people to repent and be forgiven from their sin which is their rebellion against God. And so as you envision the baptism that John would give, as you envision baptism, when you see the people, they went to the Jordan River and they, went, they were immersed and they came up, it was a picture of repentance and forgiveness. I love that. Repentance means to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. To turn away from sin and to turn towards God. It's a changing of your mind. Sin is God's word for deliberate rebellion. That's God's word. How many of you kind of hear sin and you're just kind of like, I've heard it. That's God's word for deliberate rebellion. Obviously, that's King James and it was an archery term, which means to miss the mark. But the problem we have is that we are naturally rebellious towards God. We find that when we have children. Our children are naturally rebellious towards us. I mean, they're good and all that stuff. They're cute and they look like you, which helps out a little bit, you know. But you're teaching them constantly how to, what to do is right, correct? And again, I've said it many times. The reason why they know what to do is wrong is because you're around them. And they have sin coursing through their veins. It is who they are. Now, I know that's not popular. All children are innocent. Really? They're the most self-centered people I know. And some of us never grow up. Amen? But they are beautiful and precious and innocent in many ways. I love kids. Jesus loved kids. But there's something about them that is just... You can see it at a very young age. They've got problems. And it makes us nervous as parents. Amen? They're broken in ways that maybe we haven't been broken in. What do we do with that? It's an inside thing. It's not an outside band-aid. It's where the Lord would seek to come in. But repentance is very interesting. We need to repent from our sin. We aren't sinners because we have sinned. We've sinned because we're sinners. We aren't sinners because we have sinned. 
But it's the opposite that's true. We've sinned because we're sinners. And repentance is acknowledging that before God, that I'm willfully disobedient to you. I'm willfully turn away from that which would bring you glory. And we turn away from that in our thinking, in our actions. We turn away from those actions and thoughts and, and ways of thinking and we turn towards God. That's repentance. We turn to Him to save us. So many of us, we try to save ourselves. And when it's really just a conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, just going, man, I'm sunk. And then you turn to God and say, God, I'm a mess. Here I am. Save me. And that is where the flooding love and grace of God meets you like a tidal wave. Nothing you've ever experienced before. The mercy of God just flowing over your life. And so, John's baptism is a picture of our old life of sin dying and going away by God's grace. Amen? And it's also a picture of forgiveness. You know, God sent this son Jesus to die on the cross in place of sinners. Any sinners in the house? Any willfully rebellious people? Hey, yes, me. The innocent for the guilty. Jesus for me, for you. And so Jesus paid the debt of sin upon the cross. And when we turn from our sin and turn towards God's provision for our sin, Jesus, found in faith in him, we find that we have been totally forgiven. Totally forgiven. Our debt has been totally wiped out. Amen? And so... When they came up out of that water, it foreshadowed Christ rising from the grave three days later. And so we too have died to our old self of sin, but now have a new life. We have been born again, born of the Spirit. We are forgiven. Amen? Amen. I love that. And so John's message was a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. And we must be careful because there is no forgiveness without turning from our sin towards God. Got to be careful. And sadly, preachers can preach a repentanceless gospel where people do not have to turn for their sin and just God loves them the way they are. God does love us the way we are. But he doesn't love us to keep us the way we are. He loves us enough to reach into our life and to change us from the inside out by his grace. To make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. God sent his son to die in the place of you and me so that we might have a new life. Not continue in the rebellion that God in his mercy desired to save us from. Amen. And Luke gives us an illustration of what John's message was to produce in the hearts of people by quoting Isaiah there in Luke, in Luke verse 4. Uh, Luke chapter 3 verse 4, where Luke says of John, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people of God will see God's salvation. So the message that John preached was that, that, pre- that preparation for the Lord, that preparation of repentance, preparing those paths that are crooked. How many of you have crooked paths in your life? God wants to make straight paths. He wants those valleys to be filled, the mountains to be leveled. 
and made low. Those crooked roads straightened, the rough ways made smooth. This is what they'd often do for a king who was coming. They'd prepare the roads. They'd do road work. Amen? They'd make it look all shiny and pretty and nice and smooth for him. This is another physical picture of the reality of what needs to happen in the heart of a sinner. Of us. Luke wasn't quoting Isaiah for a geography lesson. Amen? What Isaiah was getting at is that this world is blinded from seeing the Lord. They can't see salvation. Because the paths are crooked. The mountains are too high. The valleys are too deep. If I went and told you, hey, I want you to go fill in Walla Walla Valley, go ahead and do that. You're going to have some problems. You can't do it. Sin blinds us from seeing God, the word declares. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that he proves to people that they are wrong about sin. John 14, 6. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is he proves to us that we're wrong about sin. He works in our thinking and shows us where we're wrong by his word. He shines light in the darkness so that we realize, oh, this is a mountain. Oh, that's a valley. No wonder why I'm so stumbling because my path is crooked or it's not smooth. That's the Holy Spirit at work. And you see, every person has been warped by sin. And God, in his mercy, through the foolishness of preaching, the world looks at, look, what I'm doing right now is foolishness. Absolute foolishness. And that's why most of those guys in that room sat there and said, you know what? You're out of this planet. You're from a different world. Because it's foolishness to those who are perishing. And we're fooled into thinking we've got to be entertaining in order to proclaim the word word of the Lord. We're going to hear what John says here. Let me tell you, you're not going to be entertained by it. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a good speaker and illustrations and all that stuff, but that isn't the power of God. That's not... Good speaker equals the Holy Spirit. You're fooled. God uses those things who are not. Amen? So, we look like a a bunch of knots out here, so this is good. God will use us, and and He gets to shine through us and our weaknesses, you know? But, our paths are crooked. We have valleys. We have mountains, we have roads that are crooked in rough ways, and God comes in our blindness and in our obstacle to him, that, the obstacles that we love, by the way. Mankind loves darkness. Did you know that? It's like that ring in the Lord of the Rings. My, my precious. God says, comes in, he walks into the room, goes, eh, I'll, I'll have that. That's what you need to be removed from your life. And you're like, anything but that. My precious, and you'll fight and you'll claw and you'll do whatever you want, you know? But we begin to see when the Holy Spirit, who is so gentle, he comes in and he begins to shine his light into our hearts. And we begin to see the reality of our sin. The reality of our rebellion. See, that's not a work of emotionally charging you. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. That is what he does. He comes into the world and he just starts speaking to your heart. And you know. 
and you start to justify in your mind. And the reason why I'm talking to you about this is because I'm experienced in it. Anybody? I remember sitting there and preachers preaching and he's just talking about it. He doesn't know what's going on in my life, but man, I was speaking right to where I was at. And I knew I had to change. I knew I had to give up, but guess what? That was my road. I loved my crooked road. Anybody else love those crooked roads? You've become so familiar with it, you own it. Hmm. But when the Holy Spirit's at work, a person cries out before God, I am poor in spirit. I am bankrupt. I'm crooked. I'm immovable. I'm an immovable obstacle, God. I'm unwilling in so many ways. Save me. And we see him, we see Jesus willing and ready to save at that moment. Ready to bury that old life that we can't bury, amen? Willing to give us that new life that we cannot attain. Willing, he's willing. And he's waiting. He does it all. But we must repent. We must turn. Which is the work of the Holy Spirit as well. <laughs> but if you are convicted this morning, that's the Spirit. That's the Spirit in your life this morning. Prepare your heart to see Jesus, who alone can save and make straight. Amen. But you must be humble. You must be humbled, and, and you must you must. F- face who you really are. You must be willing to be poor in spirit and say, I am nothing. Who wants to hear that? You see, that's where life starts. Do we preach it? Listen to John's message in verse 7. John said to the crowds, coming out to be baptized to him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to ourselves, we have Abraham as our father, or I go to Christ Community Fellowship, or whatever it might be. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Let me tell you, John's church wouldn't survive in Walla Walla if he was not filled with the Holy Spirit, if it wasn't the Spirit doing the work. And that's what I long for. I long for the Spirit of God to be doing the work for just Him so we know it's not us It's not, oh, look what we did together. It's just, look at God using broken vessels. You see what I'm saying, the difference between it all? He's real, and he's moving, and he's here, and he's active. It's him. That's what I long for. I've never been good at anything like that. It's okay to say that. I'm not a great speaker. I know it. I can bore you to death. I backwards on. Who cares? Let God arise. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. It's his church. The world hates me, they hate him. John preaches, John calls people out, he calls them snakes. 
And let me tell you, you are all snakes by nature. I am a snake with you. I'm probably a bigger snake. How do you like that? John sits there and just, if John in his, in his, in his righteous, holy nature comes out filled with the Spirit and says, You snakes, why did you come to church? Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, first of all, John is called, but he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's holy. He's set apart. God's done a, a sanctifying work in his life. He's called by God to proclaim that message. It's hard for me to say that when I feel like a snake myself. Amen? But, you see, John's message was calling them to repent, to turn. The Holy Spirit is convicting us that we are snakes before we can become sons. Snakes are not sons. Snakes are the offspring of Satan, the serpent. That's what he's getting at. And mankind is by nature spiritual snakes. That is who we are. We're vipers at the core. We're anti-Christ. We are anti-God. We have a different kingdom. Awaiting God's wrath. How many of you guys let you know, poisonous snakes hang out in your backyard? What are they waiting for? They're waiting for your wrath. You're going to crush them because you know their nature. What is their nature? You get around them, what's going to happen? You're going to get hurt. They're going to strike out. They're going to kill you. Now, one of the worst things we can do is when someone is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and is seeing that they are truly a snake, is to tell them that they're a son. It's to come and put an arm around them and to tell them, oh, it's okay, everything's, everything's all right. No, you just let the process go. See, John didn't stop and say everything's all right. John says, now go produce the fruit worthy of repentance. Let's see it worked out. And in Christianity, it's so sad when the Holy Spirit is really working on someone that we come and we undermine that process in, in, a, in a sense of compassion that can actually ruin what God is doing. How many of you are hard-hearted and stubborn and just long for someone to come up, put their arm around you, and then you just go back to what you're doing because you're emotionally satisfied? Anybody else like that? That's me. Okay, two snakes, three snakes, four. Okay, five. When the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts, I tell you what, there's a process that has to happen in someone's life. Just let it go. It's hard to watch someone suffer like that, but I tell you what, it's like birth pains. A son will be born, a daughter will be born. Let them feel it and know it because that's who they are. That's who we are. I felt the weight of my sin before coming to Christ. I felt the weight of what I did. I felt the despair. I felt the depression. I felt the loneliness. I felt that there was no one to help. I felt that I was lost. And that was God's mercy in my life. To make me totally miserable to the place where I would see the Savior. I was poor in spirit. And I cried out to him because he was it. My friends weren't going to save me, work, nothing. My abilities is just him. You see, that's designed by God to drive them to a savior. The fear of wrath because of the very nature that is in 
rebellion towards God. This is why John doesn't lighten up. He says, show repentance. Show it. Let conviction turn to action. It must. Because snakes do snake things. And sons and daughters do son and daughters things. Amen? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise. When the Holy Spirit convicts, when you feel like you know you're under the gun, I want to justify myself. Anyone else? I want to give you reasons why I'm good, why I'm accepted, why all these things are. But that is not what the Lord wants. He wants us to say, you're right. I'm wrong. And that hits at the pride, the core of the problem. The snake core. We're all born snakes. But we must be born again to become sons and daughters of God. Well, what does it look like to repent? Great question. Verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should, not, should do the same. You see someone in need, you've got to help them out. You have something they don't, you help them. Because that's what sons do. Snakes hold on to stuff. Sons are benevolent in giving. There's a difference between people from different backgrounds and expressions of sin. We, see, we know that. But a general principle of repentance is to do a 180. Is to change. If you have two shirts or extra food, share with those who do not. Repentance is characterized by compassion for others in need. That reflects God's heart, right? We were totally lost. We were naked, poor, wretched, and blind. What did God do? He clothed us in his righteousness. So sweet. We should have his nature. Show it. This is why James says, you say you have faith, but I don't see it in your works. Guess what? You're a snake. So is the way narrow? Are we saved by works? No. But I tell you what, that's the fruit on the tree that shows who we are. God saw that we were in need. He says, you go do likewise. Let's finish this up real quickly. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Tax collectors were hated. They worked for the Roman government. They were Jews working for the Roman government which the Jews hated. And so they were sellouts to their nation. They would come back and then they would tax people what the Roman government wanted, but they would tax them way more than they should. We'll see that with Zacchaeus later in Luke. So they were just hated by society. Matthew, the book of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Good to know Jesus saves tax collectors, right? Who did Jesus hang out with a lot? Who did he get accused of hanging around with? Tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Boy, that's grace for you. Thank you, Lord. And so Jesus spent time with us tax collectors. So tax collectors were asking, what do we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Notice he wasn't against taxation or collecting taxes. He wasn't against that. So any of you are against taxes, get biblical. Jesus paid taxes. But he was against the unjust greed behind the heart of the collection. That's where he's always at. And believe me, where there's money, there's greed. Amen? Because we know money's the problem, right? No, 
You're the problem. I'm the problem. It's my heart. Internet is not the problem. It's you. It's mankind. It's our wickedness. Amen? That's what he's getting at. So he strikes at the core of our hearts. He says, what do you do? Don't steal and take advantage of people. That's what snakes do. You say you're a son, act like a son. Do your job. It's okay. Collect taxes. Don't take advantage of people. It's a big change. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? Soldiers had power. They could kill you. They could tell you to take something with them for a mile. Pick up my stuff, take it for a mile. And you couldn't do anything about it. That's why Jesus said take it two miles. To go save those kind of people. Amen? So what do they do? John said, the soldiers don't use your power to take advantage of people or your own gain. Be content. Now, this morning, the Holy Spirit's message through his word to the church and to anyone in here who is not of his, who is a snake by nature, is a message of repentance and forgiveness. Amen? The light of God's word shines in our hearts and reveals the crookedness of our ways. And I would strongly encourage you to respond in your hearts with action to the Lord. You know, perhaps God's pointed out an area of sin and rebellion in your life by His Holy Spirit. And in your mind, you're trying to justify right now why you don't have to do anything and change it. That's the work of the enemy in your heart that's fallen. The light is coming in. And these are moments in time where you need to respond to the Holy Spirit who has jumped into this situation that we're in, is speaking to your heart and is saying, I want that. It's killing you. So, I would strongly encourage you to respond in your heart and with action to the Lord. Perhaps God's pointed out that area in your life. Listen, this is serious business. Respond to the Spirit. Forget what men think. That's one of the things I was really hung up with when I was young, is really caring what people think about. Oh my gosh, if they knew I was hooked in this. Listen, I'm a pastor. I hear it all. You're all messed up. We're all messed up. There's so much. This, this, the iceberg of sin in, in, is just permeated all of us. And the enemy's lie is that if you are exposed for truly who you are, you will not be loved and you will be rejected and all those things. Let me tell you, that is not what the body of Christ should be. But when God takes person and he puts them under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he begins to change that heart. What you're going to find is a family of people who have been convicted that they were snakes, who know the wounds of who they were and who have experienced the grace of God and who have open arms and love for you. Amen? As you produce the fruit of repentance, which is important. And if you're headed down that path and the Lord in his mercy has showed you today that it is crooked, know that he loves you even though you've been slithering. He's died to forgive you and he has risen to give you new life. Amen? So run to Jesus this morning. Run to Jesus. I would encourage you to come and speak with me or one of the elders or one of your brothers and sisters after service. Amen? One of the redeemed. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Amen? God desires to cleanse and forgive you. 1 John chapter 8, uh, 1, verse 8-10. through 10. I'm not just going to read verse 9, but I want the context here. 
says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. He sandwiches at that verse. And so respond to the Spirit this morning. I'm here to pray with you. The elders are here for you. God is victorious over sin. He takes snakes and makes them sons. I'm one of them. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we come before you this morning. I thank you that your heart isn't to stomp on the heads of snakes. That your heart is to make us sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What marvelous love and compassion you've had on us. You see us in our weakness. You see us in our brokenness. You see us in our fallenness. You see the valleys and the hills and all the things and the obstacles of our lives. And yet your spirit comes into us and, and shows us these things, comes around us, gives us the word that permeates and, and the light shines. And here we are exposed before you, a very raw moment. And so, Lord, save. Lord, come in and bring your children to repentance. Those who claim to be yours and are walking in darkness, cause us to repent, Lord, before you turn towards you and to walk in the light as you are in the light. And for those on the outside, you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ and he's convicted you of your sin this morning. And believe me, you're among people who have, been, who have had that conviction. If that's you and you want to say, Lord God, forgive me, raise your hand and we will pray for you. Lord bless you. Anyone else? Lord bless you. your brother or sister in the Lord and you say that you're falling at the Lord and yet you've got darkness in your heart and he's convicted you raise your hand I'm not going to come hunt you down Lord bless you Lord bless you (coughs) this is good stuff guys gals Lord bless you Lord bless you Lord bless you you see Holiness precedes the power of the Lord in Scripture. If we want to see the Lord move, He works through broken people, humble people, contrite people. Let's pray. Lord, these people have lifted their hands. You know their hearts. I ask that you'd flood into their lives and and forgive them as they take the next step of grabbing a real, live, living brother or sister. Guy, if you're, go go grab a brother in the Lord, girl, uh, grab a a lady in the Lord, and confess your sin. Say what it is that's going on. That is the next step. So that you can get real change in your life. There's so many people who have been so forgiven and so blessed as the Lord has done this in their lives. So take that step. But know that the scriptures say that if you confess your sin to the Lord, you'll be healed. You'll be cleansed. You're you're forgiven. God cleanses you. So right now, as you call out to the Lord, say, God, I'm a sinner. And this is before your life. And I've been so wrong against you. And I've held on to it. And I won't let go. Lord God, I give it to you now. If that's you, know that the Lord forgives you. You are forgiven. 
But that's, you've got to have fruit now, worthy of it. Now you change your life in the direction you're going. And that means you need to walk in the light. And light is an openness. You need to share it with a brother or sister, with myself, someone, so we can encourage you and pray for you and put our arms around you and rally around you and help you to take the steps. So Lord, bless these people. Draw them to yourself. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.